Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week we go retro. We start off the first segment with senior editor Nick DeSena talking to us about the new Kawasaki Z650 RS. This retro-styled moto follows after the huge success of the Z900 RS, and it follows that same inspiration as its sibling. The KZ650 back in the 70s was a brilliant machine. It combined relatively lightweight and a motor that revved to the moon, so it quickly gained popularity and sold very, very well. The new Z650 RS plays to the visual strength of the original, and certainly for me, the flawless emerald green, the pinstripe paintwork, and those gold spoke-type wheels are really inspiring and truly evocative of the original. In the second segment, Neil Bailey continues his chat with Brian Slark, the man who helped bring Norton to the United States. Brian talks to Neil not just about his amazing career, but he also gives us some insight into the burgeoning motorcycle industry of the late 60s and early 70s in America. The rivalry between Triumph, Norton, and of course the other now extinct British brands such as BSA, AJS and Matchless was apparently pretty fierce. And Brian's first-hand witness account to the whole era is absolutely fascinating. I hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, so the um, 2022 Kawasaki Z650 RS Obviously, the RS refers to, um, you know, the vintage-themed bikes that we've seen come out of the Kawasaki camp in the past couple of years. Most recently, that would be the uh, Z900 RS. And all of the styling cues, it uh, borrows from the original Z family. In the case of the Z900, it's referencing the legendary Kawasaki Z1. And... uh, Arthur can definitely chime in about the relevance of that and importance of that in motorcycling history. Yeah, they've done a really they've done a really good job. Yeah, and incidentally, the aftermarket has a lot of parts where you could make it look even closer to the original, um, and and uh, they're really quite remarkable. So yeah, it's got they've done a really great job with taking a modern motorcycle and making it look retro but not act retro. Yeah, so you get um you know, the classic vintage looks that everyone sort of lusts after without all of the um, classic vintage experiences like carburetors and horrendous tires. And <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's what the Z650 is running with. It's, its main uh, direct reference point is the original uh, Z650, uh, another incredibly important a motorcycle for for Kawasaki. So it's built on the the very, I would say, reliable, tried and true, proven platforms that are the um, Ninja 650 and Z650. So the Ninja is the fully fared version, while the Z is the naked modern version. And going into this review, we kind of knew what to expect because we know both of those machines quite well um you know kawasaki's middleweight engine its parallel twin engine is extremely reliable it's a nice punchy little motor it has lots of character 
Um, you know, its criticisms might be that it's not as exciting as, say, the Aprilia 210660 or, you know, other two, 270 degree uh, crank pin having um, motorcycles. Just doesn't have that same attack. But here's the thing with this engine <clears throat> it's insanely versatile. It's in all of Kawasaki's middleweight uh, offerings. It's extremely reliable. Again, just kind of harping on that. It's something that I usually don't talk about, but uh, remember a couple of years ago, Kawasaki mentioned that that was actually their most reliable engine in the entire fleet. Um, from a, a certain Kawasaki employee that will go unnamed for this, uh, you know, <laughs> the sake of his. I'd imagine it also has. Um really sparse service intervals so yeah. I, I actually haven't checked into that but i would imagine that that this parallel twin really requires very little servicing you sort of change the oil and you're good to go yeah and that's sort of the advantage of the middleweights not just kawasaki's but a lot of middleweights in general is cost of ownership is is kept down because one it's reliable and two you generally just have to do the 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 sort of basic maintenance to keep it going and you're you're gonna be okay. And you're changing oil, changing spark plugs, checking the air filter. It's about it. Of course, where it really departs from the original is the original was an inline four. It was a sort of a slightly shrunk down version of the 903 cc, you know, classic KZ 900 line. Um, so the the Z650 originally was a four, and and obviously now. And the retro version is is a twin, so it does depart a little bit from um, the same the 900 version sort of retro versions, which are very similar. But but the uh, the essence is still the same. The essence is still the same, and obviously the tank and the look is very is very similar to the original Z650. I mean, it's for a guy of my age, it's very evocative, um, you know, to me. Yeah. Yeah. And just as a, a point of sort of a historical fact, it was KZ650. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's my uh, that's my English roots coming out in, in England, in <clears throat> Europe. They were simply Z's. Um, and it was only it's in America and perhaps somewhere else. I'm not sure. But but certainly in America, they were KZ's. So for me, it's difficult to break the habits of a lifetime and call it a KZ, whereas in fact, I've always grew up knowing it as a, as we say in England, we call it a Z. So they were always yeah. Z1s, you know, Z1s and Z650s. It was always the Z range. Um, so, but actually you are correct. In America, they were KZs. Yeah, yeah, because when you look at the history of them, it typically references these bikes, whether you're talking about the Z1 or, or uh, other models, it says Z, the displacement number and then slash KZ uh, referencing the, the North American market. So for our listeners, realize that these, these terms are interchangeable. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I am a proud American and have been for 30 years, I can't get past this KZ business. So, so ignore me. It is a KZ 650. <laughs> yeah, for, for the purposes of continental United States, it is a KZ. But um yeah, you know, KZZ, whatever you want to call it. It references the uh, late 70s, early 80s uh, iterations of of uh, Kawasaki's middleweights. Yes, uh, it is a parallel twin instead of an inline four, but, you know, Kawasaki had this engine laying around and uh, they're going to put it to use. So, you know, middleweight displacement inline fours aren't really much of a, a thing anymore. They haven't been for quite a long time. 
But since we're talking about the engine, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of this motor just kind of overall. I think it has nice low and mid-range torque. It's very easy going. Um, if you're a rider that's just starting out, I, I would actually, typically I, I tend to, to recommend people start at the, the bottom, you know, start at something with like a 300cc or a lightweight displacement motorcycle, whatever the brand may be. But because of how user-friendly Kawasaki's middleweight engines are, or in this case, their middleweight engine is because it's in numerous models, I can see a more enthusiastic beginner getting into a motorcycle like this and being totally okay. Um, has a you know, really nice throttle response. Yeah, it doesn't really have power that's going to overwhelm you. And when you start talking about people that may be intermediate level or advanced riding levels, skill levels, you know, it still has enough power to keep those people entertained on top of the fact that you get this nice little induction howl. So when you really just hold it wide open throttle, it, it actually gives you something. Again, this motor is <laughs> right. sort of positioned as something that's more commuting oriented. It's more for the every rider. It's not racetrack focused or super high performance. It's an all around engine that does pretty much everything pretty good. Yes, I, I totally agree. I mean, I really like, I haven't ridden this new RS version, but certainly I've ridden the, the straight Z650 quite a lot. And it's exactly as you say. Um, it, I mean, harking back to your comment about, you know, sort of beginner riders and intermediates and what have you, I found that of the middleweights, the Z650 is a physically slightly smaller bike. It just mm -hmm. feels more compact and and more maneuverable and more agile. I mean, it's a great urban bike, but I would not discourage people right at the beginning of their motorcycling career to, to start on one of these, you know, especially if you're a, a taller person, you know, if you're a taller person, if you've got quite long legs and a, a, the, the size of this motorcycle is not going to intimidate people. But how do you, how do you feel the RS compares in physical size to the straight Z650? Is it pretty much the same thing, just with a different, a different look to it? Or are they really very different motorcycles? So physical size, I think you're right on the money in terms of describing how a, an average size male or female rider sits on the bike. To me, this bike feels as if it's edging towards the smaller end of the spectrum. Not truly a Lilliputian of a motorcycle, but it's definitely on on the just just kind of left of that that neutral marker if we're going to say that. Okay. So wheelbase is 55 inches or 55.3 if you want to be exact. Now that's not inordinately small. It's not really long. It is on the smaller side, kind of on the sportier spectrum. And what really makes it small to me is you know, it has a really steep rake and you just get good sensations from the front and the rear of the motorcycle. Sure. And the bars are close to you and everything feels a bit more compact. You know, if you jump on the Z900, for example, that is a noticeably larger motorcycle, not just in terms of displacement, but just overall, just feels a bit more spacious, um, you know, if you're a taller, more experienced rider. But the advantage of having a motorcycle that does feel just a tad you know, on the uh, smaller end of the spectrum is that to me, that translates to something that's typically far more controllable. I feel like a beginner 
can get on that thing. As you said, they're not going to be intimidated by the physical size of it. They're going to be able to reach their, their boots to the deck. Um, it has a fairly low seat height at around 31 inches tall. And then you have that really nice plush classically styled step seat that references the uh, original Z650 and KZ650 um, bike, just bikes of that generation overall. And then the suspension has some squish to it along with the seat. So people are still going to be able to get their boots on the ground at stops and just feel generally comfortable if they're really just starting from zero and getting on a bike and just trying to learn. As we've discussed before, being able to reach the ground is not, it, the ground is not just about seat height. It's about the, the seat shape as well. Correct. So this has, a, this has a relatively modest seat height and it's nice and narrow. So, so that equals really, um, you know, you don't have to be the jolly green giant in order to be able to sit astride this thing and, and touch the ground. It's, they're, they're actually, they're great. Yeah, exactly right. And with a parallel twin engine, because the engine's more compact, a motorcycle manufacturer can really do some nice things to keep that whole motorcycle nice and thin, which, you know, think about riding a, a horse and how you're nice and bow-legged and you can't really reach down because horses are gigantic. Whereas... Well, and you only have one horsepower. Exactly. <laughs> right. Is, isn't a horse actually more than one horsepower? It might be. It might be. I, I <laughs> you're, asking the, you're asking the wrong guy here, but, but yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> so... Yeah, with, with a, a motorcycle that, that keeps a very thin profile, you're obviously able to reach the deck easier than something that might be a little bit more bulbous, say an inline four engine that's a bit wider. So the entire package has to become wider and you can see the problem. So one cool thing that they did do related to the um, sort of thin nature of the bike is designers really worked at um, making the seat and tank seam narrow so exactly where you would step down at a stoplight making sure that that whole profile uh, that vertical profile will say is kept at a minimum so again shorter riders will still be able to reach the deck and if you're a taller person i would say even you know well not taller necessarily but if you if you stand at five foot eight inches you have a 29 or 38, 30 inch inseam, you're gonna be able to reach the floor with room to spare. I mean, for me, yeah. I have a 32 inch inseam and I can get my boots on the deck and I still have kind of bent knees. So right. it's not yeah. like sitting on a tall sport bike or an adventure bike or anything. It's sure. totally casual. Sure. Yeah, so it's, they're very user-friendly motorcycles. And, and clearly, um, again, I go back to my question of, you know how much does this rs sort of retro version compare to the the original just standard naked z650 in terms of performance handling abilities things like that suspension they're they're going to be relative now the thing that does change between all of the motorcycles whether you're talking about new 650 or or z um and it's obviously its direct reference point would be the z um They've adjusted oh. the riding position a little bit. We've already touched on the fact that it has a nice cushy uh, kind of step seat. And the other thing that they've changed is basically through a couple little mechanical changes, they've raised up the, the handlebar position. 
made it in a much more, we'll say, neutral and kind of old school writing position. Uh, by the numbers, it's uh, something like the, the upper triple clamp actually sits three quarters of an inch higher because they lengthened the fork tubes. So suspension travel and all that is still the same. It's just the tubes are longer, so the, the triple clamp can be mounted higher. Now atop that, you actually have um, these nice back-swept handlebars that look quite old school, fit the whole RS retro theme. And overall, they sit two inches higher and roughly just a little bit over an inch closer to you. So when you're talking about your upper body, you're actually sat up a little bit more vertical and the bars come back. So it just keeps you in a really casual riding position. The Z650, I would say, is a little bit more aggressive than that. Not too much, but obviously two inches up and an inch back, that's going to change the riding position significantly. The other thing that we definitely need to talk about is the updated tank. Um, you know, it has the classic sort of teardrop style tank. Right. And in the candy emerald green, it has this awesome pinstriping that's ripped directly from the original KZ650. Um, and you have that classic Kawasaki badge, just looks awesome. So the, the tank is a little bit narrower than say the Z650. It doesn't have the um, sort of right angles that a modern fuel tank typically has. So you can really brace against it when you're braking. It's not that type of motorcycle. You sit upright, it's very casual. You're kind of tucked into that seat and the seat has some grip to it. Um, but, you know, just an upright, neutral riding position. Even then, if you go in the canyons and, you know, start having a little bit of fun, that riding position isn't gonna slow you down in the least bit. And if we're talking mechanical changes from Z650 to this, the only thing that they really did to the frame is basically redesign the subframe portion of, of the, the actual frame. And that was just to accommodate the seat. It had no functional change on geometry. It doesn't do anything like that. It's just because the seat in this configuration is flatter and longer than the sportier Z650. Um, so it's just a, a slight change for the aesthetics, essentially. Sure. In terms of suspension, do they uh, continue with the, exactly the same suspension, the same spec suspension, or is this, um, I maybe might expect it to be a little softer, perhaps with a slightly more relaxed, you know, riding position. You know, they did not stipulate any damping or spring rate changes uh, in the literature. And just from memory, it feels pretty much the same as, as the other uh, iterations of these motorcycles. Um, of course, you have the non-adjustable KYB fork, and then you also have, have a uh, spring preload adjustable shock in the rear. So overall, I would say for someone of my weight, um, I'm at 180 plus pounds, you know, with or without gear, don't exactly know because I weigh myself like once a year. But um, <laughs> for me, I would say it's probably just on the side of being a little bit underdamped. Not terribly so, but again, you have to think about the positioning of this motorcycle. It is aimed at potentially beginners, intermediate riders that may not be pushing this motorcycle to 
the limits of its performance, we'll say. And just when, you, when you're riding around in the canyons and you really pick up the pace, you will notice that it is a little bit underdamped going over some undulations, things like that. So big compression bumps, um, you know, maybe some uh, less experienced riders are listening to this. And so when I say compression bumps, I mean, anything in the road surface that dips down makes the chassis load and then unload rapidly. So you kind of go in and then bounce out. And when your suspension is under damped, typically that means on the exit of that bump, the chassis can unload quickly and then unsettle just a hair. Now, in this case, even though I would say it's just a little bit under damped, specifically in the shock, um, it's not bad in any way. The chassis never actually gets loose or kind of intimidating. I, I would just, for my preferences, I'd like a little more. Now, when we take things to an urban environment and we start looking at just general commuting, daily life, that's where this softer suspension really kind of comes into its own because it gobbles up potholes easily. And, you know, we did some of a ride through the Sunset Strip and the Hollywood area, you know, dropping down into Malibu. And some of those sections of tarmac are pretty beat. Um, you know, it's a high traffic area and it gets hot. So those two things together, there you go. And, you know, in that context, it's quite good. So you get a very compliant motorcycle, compliant suspension. Now, importantly, it doesn't dive when you're braking. It's, you know, it doesn't have any issues like that. Um, the only thing that you will kind of notice, and this goes back to the engine portion, is that specifically in first gear, the throttle can feel pretty snatchy at those lower RPMs. As you okay. click through the gears, you know, you go into second, it's less pronounced. You go into third, it's pretty much already cleared up by then. And then when you have sort of this more cushy setting in the suspension, that first gear with that snatchier throttle, you can sort of induce this uh, <laughs> kind of comical, like, a little oh bit God, of old do old I know old. how to ride a motorcycle sort right. of thing when, you, when you're just getting going. And right. Um, right. it caught a couple of us out. We were like, hmm, that's interesting. It's also geared pretty low overall, the Z650 and the Ninja 650 and this motorcycle. Right. It's a pretty, pretty big rear sprocket. And, um, right. okay. you know, why it does that, I'm not sure, because I don't remember that from the Z650 or the Ninja, but whatever. It right. does it, so. um, I, I take it, obviously, I'm sure there's minimal electronics on this. Is it ride-by-wire? So in other words, do you have riding modes on it? No, 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 nothing like that. So the middleweights don't have riding mode, or the Kawasaki middleweights don't have riding modes. They have ABS. Uh, some models may, may be optional. If I'm getting this correctly, I think the Ninja 650 and the Z650 have optional ABS for the U.S. market. Not sure if they've done away with that. For the Z650 RS, ABS is standard on whatever colorway you choose. Again, thinking about a, a beginner, intermediate level buyer, even an advanced rider, ABS is something that I always support wholeheartedly, especially if you're going to be riding around in the city and doing a lot of stop and go riding. Um, you know, things yeah. can jump, jump out at you and it's always nice to have the only sure. critique I would have with the ABS is that it is sort of conservative in its intervention. It doesn't totally restrict power. So your braking power isn't just sapped and then you're sort of panicking, but over bumps and 
cracks in the pavement and things like that, it will just trigger through the lever, sort of signaling like, hey, I'm getting ready to do something, you know, be aware. And to me, it's just sort of typical Japanese conservative, if that makes sense. <laughs> their, their settings are a little a bit lower than the European uh, manufacturers. So, but in terms of electronics, that's pretty much what you're working with. Uh, so no riding modes. Sure. You get on the bike, you turn the key, you press the starter, and you're, you you're go. going. Right. So, you know, that's that. And to me, I kind of love the simplicity of, of middleweight bikes built like this because it's just, there's nothing to distract you. You just go. And I, I, I really do love a lot of the middleweights. Yeah. Not specifically because of that, but that's one of the reasons. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, I think going back to sort of the looks of it, probably the most striking thing of, uh, about this bike may be the wheels. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, again, back in the sort of the mid-70s, back in the original KZ650 heyday, um, everything had spoked wheels. And a lot of us, you know, the first thing, one of the, one of the first upgrades we did was to put, you know, mag wheels on. <laughs> on our bikes um but this this bike has this sort of spoke alike um type of you know cast wheels on them and they look really good to me these sort of oh, yeah. gold wheels that heavily spoked mag wheels look really nice yeah it's it's kind of tough because writing this story i mentioned the candy emerald green uh colorway which comes with the gold wheels and when we had the choice of riding the bikes for different photos, I was like, no, I'm riding that one. To me, that's, that's the iconic Z KZ650 color, you know, just the classic Kawasaki green, the pinstriping, and then those gold wheels like really set it off. And the, Z, the Z900RS executed this, it was executed in the same way. The wheels are designed to mimic wire spoke wheels without actually being wire spoke wheels typically wire spoke wheels will be significantly heavier than any yeah. cast or forged aluminum equivalent and there are inherent benefits to that uh, there's really no benefits uh you know from swapping the wheels that are no. here no. to the ninja 650 because they're all about the same weight this is a styling choice that i think is excellent Really, if you're buying the Z650 RS in 2022, that candy emerald green, I don't know, man. <laughs> kind of can't do it any other way. It's just no. It looks it looks really good. It's really striking. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, the specifications on on these middleweights, as you said, are fairly simple. You know, the motor is 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 sturdy and strong. I mean, it's it, it's great. It's all good. Um, they're not particularly sophisticated motorcycles, so it's all going to come down to, to looks and what speaks to your heart. And I think, you know, people are going to be deciding what sort of middleweight they can afford and what they're going to want. Going to want. And they're going to look at this thing and go, woohoo, I'm, I'm buying myself one of these because it just looks damn cool. <laughs> I, think, I think Kawasaki got the balance really, really right on this one. Yeah, that's kind of what we saw with the Z900RS. I mean, yeah. the, RS was, the Z900RS was incredibly popular when it came out with riders of that generation who remembered the Z1 and may have been there, or that was the bedroom poster um, right. you know, bike of its day. 
So a lot of people of that generation bought it. Now the Z650 RS is hoping to speak to a younger audience. Yeah. And given that it's a middleweight motorcycle, there's a strong chance of that happening. Yeah. Now, like we mentioned before, there are other little bits and bobs of modernity snuck in that are uh, sure. quite nice, I'll say. So the dual sort of analog clocks um, yep. sit abreast a little or LCD screen, it has a gear indicator, you know, fuel gauge, some other niceties of the modern era. The only negative thing with that LCD screen is it is a bit dark in direct sunlight as with most LCDs. Um, and when we say LCD, we mean, think of the like VCR microwave LCD, not full color TFT dash that is more akin to your cell phone. Sure. You also have LED right lighting all the way around. So the lighting is gonna be way better than the original KZ650, that's, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and also the engine's water cooled. And that's kind of the only sort of bugbear I see with the aesthetics of this motorcycle what really stands as a design challenge for any modern motorcycle is the fact that chances are it's going to be water-cooled uh, for the vast majority of engines that are on the market today. Uh, with you know the emission standards that we have in, in most countries, water cooling is going to be the, the dominant you know, cooling. Nobody wants to have a motorcycle that is absolutely faithful to something that was built 40 years ago no i hope not because if it's absolutely faithful it's not better <laughs> yeah of course not <laughs> i mean these things are you know it's it's retro styling which which takes the sort of the, the best of the older bikes but puts it into a modern package yeah and that's absolutely fine i i don't know if you've ridden any of these older motorcycles from the mid 70s at, at any point but but I can tell you that certainly from the 900, um, my old 900 that back in the 70s, I absolutely loved and was this king of the road, powerful, you know, decent handling, you know, what have you, that I thought I was absolutely the, you know, Mr. Cool. Ride it nowadays, the thing feels like a tank. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's a yeah. sort of a, a large, slow, not particularly, I, I mean, life has moved on in 40 years so you know, i don't want to don't want to badmouth the old stuff but but these new bikes take advantage of modern technology and so of course there's a certain amount of of uh, of compromise and 17 inch wheels and liquid cooling and, and what have you so let's take the the coolness of the old bikes the great retro styling the cool colors you know and make it look really good inside a modern machine um, or wrapped around a modern machine. And they've done that very successfully. I think it's great. And we don't have to apologize for the fact that there's a lot of modern stuff on it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my point about the, the radiator stuff is uh, some brands can execute hiding the water cooling a little bit better. With air-cooled engines, you see the engine super mechanical. It's kind of why, you know, American V-twin brands have, have thrived in that aesthetic where the, the engine is the centerpiece, right? Because it's sort of, unmolested with anything you just see this lump of engine you're like oh that's cool yes that is true with brands like triumph and the bonneville they've gone to great lengths to hide the plumbing the problem is not every brand can do that because well this this engine is in multiple motorcycles that are radically different from each other you have the versus 650 the ninja 650 the z650 they're all different things so 
could have Kawasaki hid some of the plumbing and, you know, some of the little bits on the radiator between this model and the other ones. Yeah, I guess. But at the same time, it's about the only eyesore I really see. Cause when you look at that fuel tank, how it feeds down into the body paneling, into that retro fender, you know, the front fender, the wheels. I don't think it's an eyesore. I, I think it, I think the bike looks great, but yeah. Could Kawasaki have, have, have done the same thing as, you know, Harley have done with their engines? Yes, of course they could. They have absolutely the capability. Would it have doubled the price of this bike? Yes, yes. it would have done. So, <laughs> so I think, you know, you have to, we have to allow for compromise here. Yeah, no, and, that, and that's sort of the point. This is an engine that's used in a lot of different applications. Sure. And, you know, sometimes some things get carried over that may not be... Yeah, totally faithful to the original but you know guess what it's several decades later it's going to happen it's a very similar bike to the z650 except it has the sort of the retro styling instead of the modern styling so yeah. you know you pays your money you takes your choice and and on that point um is the rs a lot more expensive than the standard z650 or it is so you know when they said the the msrp of this bike so it is eight thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars that is a decent bump above the Z650. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that's a bit more, but then you look at the entire, uh, we'll say retro or converted retro class of motorcycles. So we'll say the XSR 700, Ducati Scrambler, you know, things of that class. It's actually on the cheaper end of that whole spectrum. So while yes, it is more expensive than its progenitor, you are getting the sort of the styling tax. At the same time, it is significantly different from the bike that its, its chassis and, and core components are, are based on. You know, it has a completely different steel fuel tank. The seating position is, is updated. Gold wheels, they're actually different wheels. The rotors are instead of the pedal rotors that Kawasaki puts on a lot of its lightweight and middleweight machines, goes to a round disc. There's no functional change. It's just sort of trying to reference the original Z, KZ motorcycles. You have the dual analog clocks. So there's a lot of work to flip the script on the, on the motorcycle and, and give it a unique appearance from the two. Because realistically, if you look at a Z650 and you take a look at this, while a keen eye will spot a lot of similar parts, it looks completely different. So yeah, you know, if you're going to buy a suit, you're going to have to pay for it. You can't just wear a t-shirt and jeans at a wedding. I mean, come on. <laughs> so fair, fair enough. Okay, so overall, the bike is is similar, but not identical to to its uh, precursor. Yeah. But um, it's, it's a gorgeously styled bike. And if you're prepared to pay a little bit more, you get the real retro cool looking thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's reminiscent of the other motorcycles, you know, and that's sort of, a, well, it's not sort of, that's a huge benefit here. I mean, the Ninja 650 and the Z650 are absolutely proven platforms from nose to tail. And that is a really good starting point when you're trying to do a variation. Now they just add a bit more casual riding position, a little bit more upright, and dare I say a little bit more comfortable because that seat is quite plush. And you add in the styling. And if that's your thing, I can't go wrong there. I knew some of the other competitors in this, in this segment, this sort of niche retro segment, 
there's a lot of good bikes. I mean, right. I can't really think of one that, that isn't, that's just, it. I, I wouldn't be interested in, in personally. Um, right. sure. But, you know, they, they started with a solid foundation and built something that's a little bit more stylish, we'll say, um, than its modern contemporaries. And you kind of can't go wrong with that. In the second segment, Neil Bailey continues his chat with Brian Slark, the man who helped bring Norton to the United States. Brian talks to Neil not just about his amazing career, but he also gives us some insight into the burgeoning motorcycle industry of the late 60s and early 70s in America. The rivalry between Triumph, Norton, and of course the other now extinct British brands such as BSA, AJS and Matchless was apparently pretty fierce and Brian's first-hand witness account to the whole era is absolutely fascinating. So where did we leave off? When you finally came back to America? Yeah, I decided that I should stay here. It was a, a better life for me. What year was it that you settled? I came back in 66. Came back in 1966, and that was the year that you said, "Right, I'm permanently." Yeah, that's a, that's when I decided that uh, uh, life was a, a lot rosier. Decided the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, make a comparison: England in the 60s to America in the 60s. What were the big differences I culturally? Think, I think equality. There wasn't a class system. You you weren't. There was a lot of opportunity. If you if you had the ability and you wanted to work hard, there's opportunities here that you'd never have in England uh, with a class structure and everybody in America to be seen to be pretty equal and uh, easy going and it, it suited, it just, I fit in very easy and people were very, very kind to me, very helpful to help me settle in and uh, I just felt at home. So you really had come because of Bud Eakins? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that that happened on a, a Christmas party where there was some alcohol involved and he said, you know, I need to get you out of here. Why don't you come over and do a little, little bit of desert racing and come to Southern California. And at that time, it's like, you saying to me, I'm going to send you to the moon. It was further than, than I couldn't ever imagine going to California or the United States. But uh, um, I've always been, I'm going to try it. If I don't like it, I can always come back. That's my attitude. So sold my van, sold my, my gold star motocrosser for 70 pounds, worth a lot more these days, and uh, got a ticket and uh, headed out to Los Angeles. That's a crazy thing. And of course, I'm sure work was more abundant, wages were higher, standard of living was a lot better. Oh, God, yeah. Time. Yeah, just the weather was fantastic, you know. Mind you, the first summer I died with heat, but I survived and, uh, you know, went out in the desert. Loved the desert. Loved the desert racing because in those days there wasn't any BLM or EPA and you could go wherever you wanted. It was just like a, a great big playground. So when you came back, what did you do for employment straight out the I gate? I went to work for a dealer 
a friend of Bud's in LA, Bill Robertson, and he had a Honda Triumph shop. And uh, I worked there for a while, and then I saw an ad for, for BSA Western, who was a factory owner, distributorship for the, for the Western United States, looking for an assistant service manager. So I went and had an interview, and later I found out I got the job because uh, I admitted that the BSA motorcycles leaked oil. But uh, uh, that was a fantastic place. Um, it was purposely built building for, for BSA one door, Triumph the other. And it's very important to the British industry because they sent Lord Snowden over to lay the cornerstone, who was, uh, he was married, married to uh, Princess Margaret at the time. Actually, he was a photographer, Antin Armstrong Jones, and he laid the cornerstone. So it was a big palatial building, purposely built with, uh, it had its own design of wallpaper, 130 employees. Quite a, quite an operation, you know. And well, was this a push for them to promote their triples in America? Yeah, uh, when I was there, they introduced a triple. Uh, in fact, I, I actually rode the first one in the United States, or, well, on the western United States, and it was number 113. And I often wonder what happened to it. Someone's got it somewhere. And I rode that. I used to take the badges off of it, and I would go out looking for Bonnevilles and blast past the Bonneville just to upset them, you know. Big rivalry in the BSA and the Triumph. Same building at the back, same service department, separate doors. Uh, but, uh, and then I was, uh, they sent a guy over from England to teach me how to instruct people to repair three-cylinder BSAs. So who, what was the, were you part of the decision to call it a Rocket 3 or was that something that came no, from No, that was, that was a crazy thing, you know, it should have been the other way around, you know, but uh, I thought the BSA was a much better looking bike with the inclined engine, but it's a very complicated engine for, for the horsepower it made, it was a lot of pieces, but it was a super bike at the time, it was fast. So there was the BSA Rocket 3, yeah. and then the Triumph Trident. The Trident, yeah. But it, because the BSA frame and the Triumph were slightly different, the engine was canted forward yeah. in the BSA? Yeah, engine was canted forward and the frame was, was different. Because they utilized, it was a stock BSA frame from another model? No, no, they, they, they made their own frame for it. That's the thing, a very expensive way to go about. Instead of badge engineering like AJS and Matches, you know, change your badge, they had a totally different bike. They changed the frame? Yeah. How did the frame sitting different did the bikes work differently? One well, uh, BSA always used like a duplex frame, a welded frame, and the Triumphs had a always the traditional lugged, what I call it, uh, tubing and forgings, lugs on them. Just a different way of uh, manufacture. But uh, it, was, it was a big motorcycle. But I was there from 66 to... 68, late 68. So that was, was that, so it was just that this was the introduction of these triples to America. So it was a big, powerful bike. Yeah. What was available at that time? Because Japanese hadn't, well, they were just starting to come the, with the 750. The right? Honda 754 was on the, on the boat, on the horizon. And uh, actually, they, that three cylinder engine had been around since the early 60s. 
and they kept messing around with it before they got into production and they left it a little late because when the Honda came out you know electric start electric start five speed you know disc brake blah 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 but uh the rocket uh the rocket three and the trides they were pretty thirsty because where that where that uh distribution was located it was on the foot of the san gabriel mountains so we had this mountain road we could go up and we would take a commando up there and we would take a, a trident and the trident was run out of gas so you had to coast all the way down the mountain so so it was because of three carburetors it's just a thirsty uh didn't get good mileage yeah. i think when they run them at daytona they were getting about 20 miles to the gallon a pretty thirsty bike what was the f so they the, the three cylinder tridents and rocket threes did they run into the mid 70s when did they 75 and they were finished by yeah, the t160 was actually i think the best one that had the inclined engine yep electric start five speed yeah. um it's like a lot of british motorcycles it's like the tiger cub the very last one was very reliable they finally get all the bugs out of it and they stop making it <laughs> <laughs> which is which, had, which is true. I had an interesting experience a number of years ago. Um, I was invited to ride a T160 to do a land speed record yeah. in a stock class. And I think the engine had had some light upgrades, but nothing too serious. Outwardly, it was quite stock. And through a timing box, I got a record at 117 miles per hour, yeah. which is not bad from an no. old 70s triple. I no. was pretty impressed. I mean, it was it was wobbling around like a... But you have to remember, back in 1961, uh, Norton 650SS would run 118. Yeah. yeah. If you take it, but it was a lot simpler, lighter, yeah. not so sophisticated. Yeah, that was uh, it, that was a challenging record because the bike it was a little wobbly at high speed, and you had to be really gentle not to over rev it because there's no rev limiter, and I didn't want to do any damage. <laughs> So the fourth to fifth shift, I was just clutching in there trying to get that. It didn't really get much more power in fifth, but we went through it about 160. But you know, the racing versions were very, very successful. Yeah. I think they're easy to ride, you know, very flexible, easy to ride, but... Uh, were you involved with the racing program with the Triple No. 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 No, we... Um, the rating program came in later. I'd al already left, but so uh, where did you go after that period? So you well, I was at BSA, and uh, as I say, it was a very uh, uh, fancy warehouse, fancy offices. Uh, everybody drove a Cadillac. It was box. Even I'm not kidding you. They had their own design of wallpaper. It was like an extravagant place, and I got a phone call from. A guy called William Cahoon, who was an ex-guards officer, and he was Mr. Poor, Dennis Poor's right-hand man. Dennis Poor was the chairman of Manganese Bronze, who had purchased Norton, age as much as a Norton, previously, and he formed Norton Villiers. And uh, these two guys were in Los Angeles, and they would like to meet me. So I thought, well, okay. So. I, I met them in, in Los Angeles, which is unheard of of a, a, a peon like me meeting the, the chairman of Norton Villiers. And they said that they wanted to open up a distribution 
for the Western United States for Norton and AJS off-road bikes would I be interested so there I am I've got a very secure job and uh, got a vehicle and a whole fleet of bikes to ride and and there I am I'm gonna throw it all in and join Norton Villiers and but I there's something about it they were so enthusiastic and uh, apparently they'd only sold 25 the the previously the distributor sub-distributor only sold 25 Nortons in Los Angeles the previous year so we had nowhere nowhere to go but up so there I am 1st of January 1969 uh, I go to Paramount Boulevard in North Long Beach which is a kind of a seedy area and at that time there were still feedlots cattle feedlots believe it or not right in the city and we uh, Mr. Porra purchased this old dairy farm that now had a huge ugly metal building on it that build they were built phenolic nose cones for bombers for, uh, to house radar in World War II so we got this great big old empty uh, warehouse with a little office in the front and there were four of us four people and I did service parts competition warranty another uh, another guy from England did sales and uh, Bill Cahoon ran the place and we had a bookkeeper woman American bookkeeper so we did everything and we started off and uh, we had to sell some motorbikes were so you, were you, did you race or not at that time well, I was trying to, but I was too busy. I got more involved with with uh, so I thought, well, um, the best way to sell sell the commando was to let people ride the thing. So instead of sort of going around with a van with a bike at the back, uh, Mike Jackson come over from England. He's an old retired motocrosser. He come over in sales, and we would ride a commando to a dealer uh, and say hi would you want to come for a ride would you like to ride a motorcycle and they'd ride it and they'd say oh wow this is a cool bike yeah were these 750 or 850s uh 750s and s model with the high point well we had the fast packs but they weren't popular so i had to get them popular so what i did i thought there was local afm racing uh, the production racing so the local dealer was jack simmons and he was a ex ama racer national number 88 that he got banned for punching the starter at Ascot. So I go Jack Simmons, George Kirker of exhaust pipe fame, and Bill Manley, and I got him on Norton Fastbacks, and uh, they would they would wipe up all the AFM races in Southern California. What were they racing against? Uh, the Tridents and Kawasaki's and things, but they they were good. They were the Norton Wrecking Crew, so we got a lot of exposure that way. And then uh, a couple of guys come in the office one day and said they wanted to go to Bonneville with a streamliner, and that was Sam Wheeler and uh, uh, Dick Moulders. And they said, "Well, you know, what are you going to do?" And they said, "Well, we got a dirt track engine running on fuel." in a aircraft drop tank I said well I don't know if we can help you so you know what do you think you can help us with so we gave him a budget of three thousand dollars so they went to Bonneville and they ran 206 which is very remarkable first time out so that was that going on 
And then uh, Ascot was running every Friday night. That was a big deal, sell-out crowd. So I said, well, we need some exposure there. So uh, the, the AMA had just changed the rules from 500 to 750. So 750 was eligible for dirt track. So there was this young medical student from San Diego, Mel Locker, and he was friends with uh, C.R. Axtell, the tuner. C.R. Axtell was the, the magician on engines. So Mel, uh, we gave Mel a couple of motors. He'd previously been riding the 750 side valve Harley. Uh, and uh, so we gave Mel a couple of Norton engines and he did very well at Ascot. And then it got popular. So Ron Wood, we got Ron Wood a couple of engines. So we were, we were running Ascot good. So a lot of guys wanted to race Norton's there, but we couldn't afford it. So what they did, we had a big dumpster in the front of the, of the office. And if I got any warranty parts back, say a cylinder with a broken fan, I would put it carefully in the box and put it in a dumpster. And I would say, look, if you want to help yourself do any old parts at the dumpster. So that way, at one time, we had the trophy dash was 100% naught. We, we were really having a lot of bikes out there. And I'd give the guys bearings and pistons and things, but it really didn't cost us anything. So, you know, we, we, we got things going and then... Um, was this helping with sales now in the dealerships? Sales oh yeah, we Norton. were selling bikes. But, you know, when we took over, over we had, they were Berliner dealers and we had some strange dealers. I mean, there was Hillsburg Lock and Key, which was a hardware store. And then there was uh, uh, Pelican Dive, which is a scuba shop. And you could buy two bikes and a spares kit and the sign and you're in business I mean it's pretty low-key and then Cycle Magazine we, we had a good rapport with Cycle Magazine and, and uh, Cycle World Joe Parker and Cook Nielsen and uh, Cycle Magazine wanted to do a superbike shootout so uh, and the bikes had to be stocked so each manufacturer could uh, get a bike ready so I got a, a 750S and I prepared it and did some stuff to it and CRX still did a really nice valve job for me and uh, the, the shootout, the Norton really did well, it was the fastest in the quarter mile. What was it, it racing did a, against? It, it did a 12, I think 1246, 106 or so miles an hour. What was it racing against? Uh, Triumph Triple, uh, Bonneville, uh, Honda 4, uh, Kawasaki H1, it's 1970 I think. So anyway, the, the Triumph guys were very, very unhappy and they said we were cheating. And I was running an S model with high pipes. So they said they're illegal mufflers. So I said, well look, you meet me down at Paramount Boulevard in the morning and you pick out two mufflers. I had about 100 mufflers in a bin. I picked out two mufflers, they put them under their arm and we put them on, it, it ran the same. They were just very unhappy that we beat them. But, you know, I, I think in the day Norton was like Ducati, um, very, very small percentage, 1%, 2%, but a very, very big presence. We get the front page, Cycle World and Cycle, inside front cover every month, the girl on the commando. And uh, we were, we were a big influence 
like you know uh, people thought we were bigger than we were i think triumph motorcycles did that in the last 10 or 15 yeah. years they've ended up in multi-bike shootouts yeah. if you actually think about it they yeah. sell about what well 10 that, that of japanese that, but it was funny because afterwards they uh they tore the engines down and uh harley got disqualified for porting the engines and the remark was hmm that's a very nice valve job on that engine but but that when we did that and we did something else radical nortons had always been black or silver and we come out with seven colors metal flake and metal flake purple and bronze and blue and just crazy colors and it took off like crazy um people loved them and the dealers, some of our dealers were ex-racers, they were kind of cynical, crusty guys and they said, we had a dealer meeting on the Queen Mary and the guy said, ah, oh, look at that, a purple motorcycle, that's really stupid. Well, after he sold about five, <laughs> he thought they were pretty cool. But that was, that was the 60s, you know, that was seven, early 70s rather. And, you know, uh, street scramblers were hot. You know. So you, this is where you really started to develop your intimate knowledge of Nortons, though. Yeah. I guess well, you I worked at Nortons before in England. So you well, had I worked, worked for AMC. Yes. With yeah. And Norton, uh, I worked at AMC, and Norton was moved down from uh, Birmingham to London in 1962. So I, I, I had a good knowledge of, of the Atlas and the 650, but not the Commando. But I, uh, as I handled all the service and racing and warranties I, I got I got educated pretty quick how long did you stay in that position until we merged with triumph and then that's where it all fell apart they gave the franchise to triumph dealers and um, mm -hmm. that's where Norton lost its identity and I was working with the designers in England, the engineers, and I was a marketing, uh, they, they looked up upon me to advise what the American market required. Did you work with Mick Oldfield? No, no. I, I worked with uh, Bob Trigg, mm. the designer. Bob Trigg was chief designer. I worked with Bob, he would come over here, and we would go to dealers and go to races and just survey the scene, and that's where the where the uh, 75 Mark III come along really, it was a vastly different motorcycle to anything. It looked the same, but it, every part was different, everything. And it, was, it wasn't a bad motorcycle. Do you Not think they lost their way when they went to the 850, or do you think it was it? Well, you know, the, the motorcycle, when it was first designed in 1967, was very light, very agile, but fragile. So you keep improving it and beefing things up until you get a bike that's heavier. EPA said mufflers, air intake, it's got to be silenced. Uh, it, it, you make it more reliable but heavier and slower. So that the 850 in your mind was just yeah, heavier and yeah, slower? Yeah, yeah. And then you have to the left foot shift and you know added weight, complexity. And the engine was never designed to run quiet, so you thicken the castings up to make them quiet, and it's heavier, but more reliable, so... So you would prefer a 750 over an 850? Yeah, 750, uh, the, I think the 750S 
with the high pipes was the most purest one. Um, still a, a very good looking motorcycle. And uh, it was fast and it broke, but the guys didn't mind. They they loved them, you know. So you stayed, you stayed in that position. What year did you leave there? Well, 1975, it all fell apart. That was a big industry crunch. And it was complete politics that caused that. Because Dennis Poor had an idea to say, oh, the government asked Dennis Poor to save the British motorcycle industry. Then there's a change of government and it, it, it all fell apart and it was pretty ugly. So uh, I left there and actually went to Lucas. Uh, Lucas had a huge um, facility in Los Angeles uh, where they did all the distribution for the Western United States and I, I went there and uh, as, mo as a motorcycle manager and that was an education. So Lucas were making electrics for Triumphs, Nortons and BSAs? Yeah. So you were overseeing all of the brands? Yeah, they were, yeah, they were doing that. But they would do uh, uh, electric uh, invalid carts. Uh, uh, they would do aerospace, uh, undersea, and fast. Uh, they made some good stuff. Unfortunately, motorcycle and car manufacturers were cheap, and he wanted a 50-cent switch, and that's what they got, you know. So I Lucas never got a very good name. No, no, but they made some good stuff. But uh, yeah, that was a, another little facet of my career. Well, hopefully the, aeros <laughs> hopefully the aerospace stuff is a bit more reliable than the motorcycle Well, stuff. we used to laugh because uh, we used to get these little electric uh, wheelchairs and the controllers would go bad. So when you put it to left, you would go right, you know. <laughs> so that was quite interesting to see the test up and down the the parts I was in on. So while you were at Lucas, were you still riding, racing, tuning? Yeah, well, sort of th there's another facet at, at Norton Villiers was uh, the AGS Stormer, the, the off-road bikes, the motocross bikes. And we got those in 1970, 69, 70. And uh, I had to get a program going. So I, I uh, went out headhunting and found some young healthy lads in their teens that wanted to ride a motorcycle. They were riding Yamaha DT1s or something. Uh, got them on AJS Stormers and did pretty well. In fact one guy, Jim West, very promising. Uh, he rode Stormers for us and then Husqvarna picked him up. He was that good. He, mm. he was a good guy. But the thing is with the Stormer that was the suspension revolution when everybody was going long, long uh, a travel rear suspension and we were stuck with something with 60 suspension and the Rickmans were the same thing they they didn't have long travel we weren't very flexible in uh, uh, changing it um, we had a desert a desert model what I did I had a factory build some for the desert with a three gallon gas tank and wide ratio gears so uh, it was more suitable and we had some near misses there. We did the Mint 400, and uh, one of our dealers in Los Angeles set a record from uh, Tijuana to La Paz on a Stormer, non-stop. Doug Douglas, he, he rode, he rode down. I think that record still holds. He had, he, he did a, a solo record down on the Stormer. That was a big single cylinder four-stroke. Uh, 
we had the 250, then they had a 370, and then a 410. But the big ones vibrated pretty bad, and uh, you know, a, a machine that was designed in 1966-67, suddenly in the early 70s, was very outdated, four speed, right foot shift, um, you know, set of girlings on the back, but uh, it it was a it was a pretty good bike for the novice or the intermediate rider, mm. and uh, but we had a stiff competition when the Honda Elsinore came out, which is so good. So that sort of, you know, we were given away at the end. So you at this point were married to Diane, right? No, not yet. No, no, no that's it. You hadn't met well, her yet. I met Diane when I moved to Triumph in '75. Okay. She was the secretary for the race team. Yeah. And she was responsible for paying all the tickets and speeding tickets and fines. So you used for, to see her all, quite all a lot. Those, right all those crazy Aldana and uh, Romero and Mike Kidd and Mark Williams. And so you left, you left Lucas to go to Triumph in 75? No, uh, at 75, they moved everybody from Norton in 75 up into the Triumph warehouse okay. because it's a, it was a bigger facility. So we got absorbed in there, but it didn't work. And then suddenly they said, that's it, pulled the so plug. So by the time you were at Lucas, you had met? Yeah, I left Triumph to go to Lucas. Yeah. And uh, I was there about a year. And uh, I felt uh, we were all very disappointed because there's such a small band of us, a uh, very small group. Of, there was, we were up to eight people and we made such an impact by selling a lot of Nortons and uh, getting it on the map I and mean, it was kind of like a kick in the, in the teeth to, to lose it all, mm. lose it all and, and see it all go away. It's a good people. In fact, the designer, Bob Trigg, went to Yamaha and he, he was responsible for the Super Tenere indirectly. He'd already retired, but he already drew it up. But the Japanese said, Bob, I don't think we can build this. But after he left, he did build it. And, and also, he did the Yamaha TDM oh, 850. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that's referred to as a Mark IV Commando because he took his ideas. And another guy called John Favell, um, he was an engineer, a transmission engineer, mainly engines, transmission at Norton Villiers, very smart man. He went to Harley Davidson to try and sell them rotary engines. And they said, no, we don't want them, but we would like to hire you to design a new motor. And he did the Evo motor. He was the head of the Evo motor. And if you look at the Evo motor, there's a lot of Norton engineering in the thing. Valve angles, everything, even the oil filter changes. I mean, there's a lot of Norton went into the car. In where yeah. John was there, yeah. And that was a huge success for Harley. So good engineers didn't go away. They they moved around the industry. So uh, so you've finished with Lucas now. Yeah. What next? Well, when I was at Norton, when I was at, when I moved to Duarte, when we were at Norton Triumph, a good friend of mine worked for Climber Publications and uh, they always did their their manuals 
and they would do line drawings. So I said to him one day, I said, look, if you come up here with the camera, I'll take a commando apart and you can film it instead of doing line drawings in pretty crappy books. So he said, okay. So he came up and we took a commando apart, we put it all back and did a lovely book, a climber with jazz. And they said, wow, we'd like to do more. Can you help us? And I said, yeah. So um, I rented a little shop in Costa Mesa and I would borrow motorcycles from my friends in the industry, <laughs> brand new ones, taken completely apart. I would I would do the disassembly and the reassembly piece so that's by your piece. Hands yeah, my hands in the there. book. And they would photograph them. And uh, it was very successful and I did oh God, I did all the UJMs and off road bikes and I even did a snowmobile but we did that I did that. And at the same time, I started off classic motorcycles and uh, I was getting into Norton. People wanted Norton parts. So I started to get into Norton mail order and that grew and grew. And Diane was worked, by that time I met Diane and she was working in insurance office. I said, I need you to come and help me. I'm overwhelmed. So uh, we moved to another bigger shop and finally, the climber stuff was getting a bit overwhelming with all the uh, fairings and heavy work and I was so busy and the high mechanics and I had a good naught shop going and then I moved down to Semi Capistrano and I had British Marketing which was my shop and uh, that went really good. And, uh, you Dealings know, just in Norton's only. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Did Norton's, and I, I used to pride myself. I used to keep all every little piece, you know, and uh, you could fill an order hundred percent. And yeah, it, yeah. I have to go back, back to Norton days. There's a lot of bad press written about the giants of the industry. You know, the people that run motorcycle factories. Dennis Poor was an old car racer, Aston Martin, very wealthy man. He always loved Norton's. When he saw they were in trouble, he was a, the chairman of Manganese Bronze, which is a huge manufacturing. He purchased Norton for the love of it. And uh, when he would come to California, I, he would have me meet him at five in the morning and we'd, we would drive 150 miles out in Mojave Desert to see a desert race and he would walk up and down look at all the bikes there see if any Norton P11s were there which they were winning at the time and he was so enthusiastic and you always get this very uh, negative comments about giants in the industry that you know had no no connection with motorcycles but he did he was a he was an enthusiast mm. maybe it's his downfall in a way he listened to a, a lot of people he shouldn't have done but just Interesting stuff. Yeah. So you ran the shop with the Norton parts. Yeah. How? What year did that run till? Nineteen seventy-seven to about eighty-six. Oh, she so had about almost a ten-year yeah. run. And then I was getting a, a little tired of California. I just built up, so busy. And uh, one of my ISDT colleagues. Dave Munganas, Dave uh, was used to be a, a he had a, a Honda shop originally, 
in St. Louis and then he got into cars and he had about four or five dealerships but his love was motorcycles and uh, being an ISDT rider he said hey he said why don't we get it get uh, collect some motorcycles and we buy and sell some classic bikes once you come to St. Louis so I thought oh, I've got nothing to lose so off to St. Louis you went, went. went to St. Louis and uh, he got really into it pretty heavy and uh, ended up starting a, a museum so we so I actually I actually started a museum for him there which is still going now he's got about 150 bikes just moved to a new location so what, were you doing acquisition for him yeah buying, we were buying and selling bikes and going to auctions and shows and it was cool you know how long cool did you actually, how long did you spend with him there Dave, about four or five years yeah, St. Louis is good. Were good you place. mostly focused on British stuff, or did you go no, Japanese and uh, No, everything. Uh, a lot of off-road stuff, a lot of British stuff. Um, St. Louis being a, a, um, an industrious city, a lot of blue-collar workers, a lot of motorcycles, a lot of motorcycles tucked away. And, uh, yeah, fans of treasure troves, you know. Mm. What were you riding personally at that time? Were you still riding Nortons? Uh, no, I had a, uh, let's see, I sold my, my I had a, a far, I made a 75 into a Fastback and uh, did a lot of mods on that. It was my flying test bed. I sold that and uh, my friend had a BMW shop and he, he gave me a, a very slightly wrecked BMW R80, which was good for two up. And I got that, and then I had a Kajiva Alazura, which is a nice little bike. Had that. Um, had off-road bikes. Um, I've had a lot of off-road bikes. So you were buying and selling and yeah, for yourself yeah. and the museum? I built myself a... I always wanted to uh, have a Tiger Cup, a Trials, a, work, a replica works carb. So I found a late mountain carb and I built that into a nice trials bike and I rode that in armour vintage trials for about 10 years and I enjoyed that and then uh, one day I was in Missouri and rode this trial, I rode one loop and I came back and I said to Diane, I'm not enjoying this anymore and I started when I was 16 and I never rode the Triumph again I just wasn't enjoying it it, the trials have changed and they got very tight and what we call nagery in fact very balancing around the tree where when I rode as a kid it was more flat out in second year throwing mud over everybody's stuff and it got a bit too tame so I, I finished that but uh, that was the end of your trials career yeah so you so you spent what four or five years in Missouri, the, the yeah. museum. Yeah. And was that the tee up to how you ended up coming here to Barber? Well, was I, that the direct link, or was it another piece of the no, puzzle? No, I used to go to a lot of auctions and shows, and then I was very involved with armor. I was an armor trustee, and I was running a lot of motocrosses with Dick Mann and Jeff Smith. So we we I was on the road a lot doing armor stuff. And uh, I'd, I'd run into Mr. Barber, George Barber, and run into Jeff Ray, and 
Um, they used to have their bikes at shows and they were shiny, but they hate to say it, they weren't really correct. So I, uh, I, 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 I sold them some new bikes. I sold them, I sold them a collection of vintage BMWs. I sold them a couple of Nortons and I got to know them pretty well. And then I came down and uh, they had me appraise the motorcycles for them. So I come down and I used to come down for a couple of days and do some appraisals and uh, got to got to know them pretty good and then uh, I think that George Barber said he wanted the best museum in the world and I said I'm interested. <laughs> I mean what a dream. So this was when Jeff and the guys were and Mr Barber were in the old. That was in the old. This is when shop. you were working. That, that was them. just a pure restoration facility no visitors no windows we went in there seven to three crank out motorbikes and uh so you actually came full-time in the old museum yeah yeah, yeah. And so I, you had to relocate the family yeah and you moved to birmingham yeah moved to and birmingham. what year was that 70 uh, uh no. 90 95. so this is a couple of years before the new facility was started. Oh yeah, 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 there's nothing here. I mean, yeah. what happened is uh, we would we would get bikes finished and I would ride them around the block in downtown, which was pretty hazardous. <laughs> and we told Mr. Barber we'd, we'd really like somewhere a little bigger and a, little, a nice little test track to test these bikes. Well, as you can see, it, <laughs> it kind of grew. But no, it, it, that was a very exciting time. But we had, at the old museum, we had a very small crew. There's only about seven of us. And we would crank out motorbikes. We would restore motorbikes. Well, Brian, I think as I look at this, this is part two of our time together. It might be a good time to take a pause on this. Um, and then we can come back and approach this whole adventure that for has the, become... For the, for the further 27 years. Yeah, because I think, you know, lots of people come to Barber and they see this amazing facility, but they don't realize that it was you guys working in a small facility that dreamed this whole place up and then devoted the next that, 20 years of your life. The, that ignited the little fire, you know, and uh, yeah, and uh, so the boss said, "If we're going to do it, we're going to do it big." Yeah. And well, and I'm I'm fascinated well, they, to find they, that they, history. There's so um, so many different facets, and of course, in the next next interview, we could get into the art of the motorcycle at the Guggenheim, which it was was a great influence on everybody. Yeah. So that's another story to be told. Fantastic. Well, Brian, thank you for uh, coming to visit here oh, at the you're very Welcome, Center. Neil. This is absolutely it's fantastic. My pleasure. I know everybody, all you guys listening to this, are really enjoying the chance to sit down with Brian Slark, and I get the I get the honor and privilege to do it firsthand. Thank you so much. <laughs>